0: Welcome to The Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. Today on the show, I welcome Kelly Ryerson, aka Glyphosate Girl. Kelly received an MBA from the Stanford School of Business with a focus in healthcare public policy. She also trained in health coaching at the Duke Center for Integrative Medicine. Now, in her 30s, Kelly began to experience a constellation of neurological, gastrointestinal and dermatological symptoms, such as brain fog, chronic fatigue, and bloating, only to have numerous doctors dismiss her as an anxious, overstressed, hypochondriac mom. So, Kelly embarked on an autodidactic search to discover the origins of her malaise, and this research led her right into her own gut, specifically, intestinal permeability, the microbiome, and toxicity. She discovered that her issues stemmed from a leaky gut and that glyphosate, the active ingredient in Monsanto's Roundup, might be one of the root causes. somewhat unintentionally, Kelly became a citizen journalist under the name Glyphosate Girl when she began blogging from the first Monsanto trial in San Francisco. In this episode, Kelly shares how she coped with and cured her own illness and how she followed the PubMed rabbit hole to better understand why glyphosate and other toxins are debilitating our guts and causing an explosion of chronic disease in adults and perhaps most disturbingly in our children. So we discussed not only human health, but also soil, plant, and planetary health and the impact that glyphosate is having on them. Now, if you're interested in functional medicine and integrative medicine-based programs with teachers like Mary Pardee and Zach Bush and Dr. Mark Hyman and Dr. Roger Schwelt on topics such as gut health, along with sleep, immunity, hormone balancing, Ayurveda, and nutrition, well, you can sign up for 14 days of free all-access to Commune's entire course library, including more than 100 courses on health, personal growth, and social impact. Just go to onecommune.com trial. And please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving us a review on your favorite podcatcher. Without further delay, I present to you Kelly Ryerson, a.k.a. Glyphosate Girl. Okay, Kelly Ryerson, welcome to the Commune Podcast. Great to be with you.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm so excited uh, to talk with you because the, the topic of Glyphosate has come up in Almost every conversation I have on this show from uh, functional medicine doctors, the gastroenterologists, a soil and agronomy experts, regenerative farmers. Um, but I've never done an episode really dedicated to this particular compound and issue. Um, and, you know, it, it really is a topic that spans. Soil health, planetary health, plant health, nutrition, human health—it touches all of these elements. Um, so, uh, and I can't imagine a better person um, to educate on this matter than, than you, Kelly. So, thank you so much for this opportunity.
1: Oh, thank you. I'm I'm, I'm thrilled that more people are talking about it. That's a good sign. I'm glad it that it's is. a famous chemical.
0: Yeah, I feel like we're at this inflection point right now where it has come into the zeitgeist like never before. Um, and a lot of that is, is you know, thanks to <clears throat> the work that you're doing and the advocacy that you're doing and and other folks like Zach um, and uh, Zach Bush, who's been on the show quite a bit, and Stephanie Senef, who's been working on this for a decade. Um, but, you know, there's just so much terrain to cover when you get, um, no pun intended, when describing what glyphosate is, where it is, where it's not, might be a better question, um, and, uh, and all of its impacts. Um, so before we get into that, perhaps we can scaffold the conversation with a bit of your personal biography because uh, your activism around glyphosate really has its provenance in your own personal health uh, journey, so maybe we could begin by you describing just how your own personal health battles propelled you into this uh, crusade uh, sure. against glyphosate.
1: Yeah, so so I um, you know I had a relatively normal health healthy life um, for years, most of my life. Um, and when I hit my 30s, I started getting some really strange symptoms and really vague symptoms. And it actually led me to kind of be a hypochondriac because, you know, when you have several things going on at once and you don't know anything about functional medicine, what you end up doing is you like go to the doctor a lot and you're like, okay, why can't, why are my hands constantly tingling? Like, why do I get these strange rashes all over the place? And like, why am I so tired? Like aches and pains, just various ailments that didn't seem normal and certainly not normal for me. And so I saw probably, I was, as I say, it was just a broad spectrum of different, different symptoms, really everything under the sun, and including like my eyesight was kind of going my like hair was starting to fall out. And, but this was over the course of, you know, several years. And so I'm having brain MRI and all these like typical things that you know the people do and it all looked okay. And so I was told um, that I, it was a psychological issue and that, you know, all these ailments I'm having, I'm just kind of creating, and maybe I should, you know, dedicate more time to some hobbies and like my career and try and get my mind off of my health problems. And so, that was really offensive. And, um, in the meantime, I was put on several different like drugs two um, psychiatric, like two antidepressants, <laughs> one anti-anxiety and like various courses of steroids because I was inflamed. And finally I like thought, well, maybe I am crazy. And so I went to, um, see a psychiatrist and I was very sick. Like at this point I could actually barely walk, but I didn't have, uh, I had like, you know, some inflammation markers, but like it, there was still no specific diagnosis as to why I was so ill. And so I went to the psychiatrist who happened to have this intake blood work um, and it had some vitamin levels on it. And when the test came back, I was floored because I was so deficient across the board in so many critical vitamins. And so like literally coming home and this was probably now six years ago or seven years ago. And I, I was putting in to like Google, I'm like, okay, so B12 deficiency, does that really do anything? You know, and my Western doctor is like, Oh, you know, a lot of people are deficient in that, you know, they couldn't be that, you know, and I was like, Oh my gosh, but I have barely any. Um, so that opened up my eyes to, okay. And something really fundamental is going on here. This makes me think that I'm not absorbing my nutrients. And I tried giving up gluten and it was miraculous. I I had my inflammation just came rapidly down within you know a month or so. And then the healing continued over the next year. Cause obviously then I had to reuse the supplements to get the m- minerals and nutrients back in my body and start just completely revamping my diet. So that was a big eye-opener. Um, and kind of opened this whole thing and whole journey now I've been on in trying to uncover what it is and, uh, you know, what's the root cause of what happened to me that is happening to so many people at at like an accelerating rate. Why is chronic disease going through the roof? Um, Why aren't we questioning it more? Because it shouldn't be now normal that our kids even are having chronic disease at early, early ages. And, you know, so that's what started me on my journey.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, what we have become to accept as normal, I might argue, is patently abnormal. Um, Absolutely. Because, you know, you describe your journey, and I, I listen to you, and um, and I have a lot of em- empathy for your journey, and at the same time, it sounds like a lot of people that I know Mm -hmm. Um, all of these kind of vague symptoms, kind of general autoimmunity. Um, and then obviously you can look at cresting rates of of chronic disease and specific autoimmune diseases. And a lot of us are just kind of scratching our heads as like, how do we get to the bottom of this? How do we not just endlessly treat the symptoms with another kind of polypharma solution, Um, But how do we get to, you know, move upstream, uh, as you say, and try to um, identify some of the root causes? So can you describe a little bit about how you began to kind of pinpoint and identify uh, glyphosate as one of the primary players or contributors to um, this scourge uh, of chronic disease?
1: Yeah, so... Um, When I found out that I don't tolerate gluten, but am not celiac, um, I went to a conference at Columbia and it was a gluten conference on celiac and gluten sensitivity. And a scientist stood up in the front of the room and he's like, so we don't know what it is. We actually don't know that it's exactly the gliadin protein that's within gluten that's causing this inflammation. We think maybe there's something else on the grain. And so I asked, it, I was totally new to it. And I was like, well, do they spray anything? Like, do they spray Roundup on the grain? And no one in the audience, they like turn around and doctors are like, what? They no, they don't spray Roundup, that would kill it. And I'm like, okay, maybe I'm wrong. i It was in the back of my mind. And so I sat down and then the one of the lead scientists for General Mills found me and he said, yeah, well, they're spraying Roundup all over the wheat. And all over the grain to desiccate it, to dry it, and so we know there's a problem, but it's going to take two decades to um, fix this issue of using Roundup um, as a harvest aid. And I'm like, well, don't you think that that might have something to do with this huge epidemic of gluten sensitivity? And he's like, oh well, I mean, it's supposedly non-toxic, so you know, I I don't know. So anyway. They were on it, but I was like, okay. So my eyes just like were wide open immediately. I was like on PubMed, um, which is for those who don't know, it's a database that, that we were just actually talking about off, off <laughs> record, like, um, about how, you know, you can read all these pub this published research there. And it's fascinating. And if, if you want to learn more science about these specific issues, it's a great resource. Um, And so I actually the first person who I called was Stephanie Seneff, Dr. Stephanie Seneff, who um, uh, this and she has been just so outspoken and wonderfully outspoken for for many years on this before anyone was talking about it. And she very graciously met with me um, at MIT and told me about like the rough road it is fighting these these chemicals and um you know what she'd been through and really launched me into a lot of interest in this. So um and if anyone she just she's published a book now on it and everything and it's just wonderful because she just so eloquently lays out all the issues that are with this chemical and you know as you said in the intro it is phenomenal because it just impacts so much of the ecosystem, you know, in our human bodies, all around the globe, just it's, it literally is everywhere. And so then, you know, light bulbs are going off in my mind. Okay. So what is this not impacting? Well, very little, but no one's talking about it because it's been hidden by industry. So it's been fascinating.
0: Perhaps we can do some a little bit of glyphosate 101 for people that are, are new to this. So you had a vague sense that glyphosate was this active ingredient in this particular herbicide known as Roundup. Can you spend a few minutes kind of describing um, glyphosate, what it is, and primarily how it is used both commercially and for intensive uh, conventional agriculture.
1: Yeah, so, so glyphosate um, is, is a chemical that um, was originally used before it was used as an herbicide pesticide. It was used as a um, boiler, like a pipe cleaner, because it has these very specific qualities of being able to chelate and bind to heavy metals. So, and not just heavy metals, just minerals and metals. And so that is an excellent way to be able to clean out a pipe that's corroded with all of these things. So, you know, it would it would collect it and you'd clean it on out. And, and then a scientist realized, oh, wait, this has really powerful herbicidal properties. So it's really miraculous because of its, its mechanism of action. It goes into a plant and it shuts down some key energy pathways in the plant and then the plant dies. So they said, and what's wonderful about this is that uh, humans don't have these pathways. So it's not going to impact humans if they come in contact with it. So that was the idea. And it, um, in, in, they, made a, they put it together with something called a surfactant, which is a soapy substance that helps to get the glyphosate into the plant, um, and it kind of sticks and coats the outside of a leaf, and which is very toxic in and of itself, but we'll just focus on just the glyphosate component for now. Um, and they put that together and then created the well-known um, herbicide Roundup. And they launched that onto the market in the mid '70s, um, and originally it was just kind of used on the periphery of of different like crops and farms and, and landscapes, and, and you know, uh, in homes, home landscaping. And then um, the patent actually was going to be running out in the year 2000 for glyphosate. Um, and Monsanto was the company that owned that patent. And so they realized okay, we have got to do something if we're going to keep the money coming in from this like top selling herbicide. So in the mid 90s, they developed the GMO seed that is called, nicknamed Roundup Ready. So you can see you, with this Roundup Ready corn, Roundup Ready soy, Roundup Ready cotton, farmers could go in and spray the the GMO seed, like the GMO crops as much as they wanted with this Roundup. It would kill the weeds around it, but because the seeds of these crops were resistant to Roundup, they wouldn't die. So they sold the system of the GMO seed and then the the Roundup as a package, and farmers were kind of stuck using it, um, and it just was explosively profitable for, for Monsanto, um, now bear who acquired Monsanto. Um, so today you will see it used on GMO um, GMO crops, but you also, and most concerningly from a diet perspective for us, um, it's pre- predominantly used um, as a desiccant. So mm-hmm. a desiccant is something that is, uh, it dries out the crop. So think about a wheat field and taking Roundup and spraying it towards the very end of its growth cycle. And it expedites the um, drying and the maturity of the crop. And then they can go in and they just are able to process it really easily. There's no concern about like, okay, this part of the crop is, um, is mature. This part isn't. So I'll have to do it in two stages. That doesn't happen when you can just spray it all dead and then go and harvest it. So the problem though, is that they spray it. And then it's on our grain and then it's immediately sent to the mill and then put into our food products. And now we are heavily exposed um, from a dietary perspective to the glyphosate. And um, uh, agricultural economist um, Chuck Bembrook, uh, he calculated that over 80% of our exposure to glyphosate um, through diet is likely through the desiccation process of the crops.
0: That was such a great and educational history uh, of the product. Now, of course, my initial association with glyphosate was thinking back into the '80s, where uh, there would be those advertisements for Roundup, really geared mostly to men. You know, sort of like the homeowner out there courageously killing weeds in his garden uh, or on his lawn. And, you know, you could strap on this pack of Roundup and almost wield this thing like some sort of strange phallus and and kill all of the, uh, uh, the dandelions and, and things that would encroach upon this perfect lawn. And, of course, you know, um, glyphosate's water-soluble, so it would get into... Um, the water and there would be runoff and would go into local water supplies. So that was detrimental. But I think what you outlined was really like the inflection point uh, in and around 1996 with the development of these Roundup ready or GM, uh, genetically modified seeds, which basically moved conventional agriculture as it pertains to the use of, of herbicides, away from kind of like um, spot application to just mass application. Um, And of course, you know, this is where we started to see these cresting rates of chronic disease starting right around 1996. So obviously, correlation is not causation, but correlation can help us to form certain kinds of hypotheses. So maybe we could go into that time period right around 1996 and into the early 2000s. And you could explain the impacts of glyphosate on the soil and on the plants because we know now that this is a patented antibiotic and antimicrobial. So at a chemical level, what is happening when farmers... Started to mass apply glyphosate.
1: Yeah, and you know, just speaking, I've spoken to a lot of uh, farmers who still farm GMO seeds, and they they use Roundup, and they're very defensive of their choices naturally because they've committed their themselves to it. So I'm sympathetic to to them, and and empathetic to an extent because I understand the economic situation that they're in now because they're fully dependent on this chemical and. Very sadly, their property um, and their really healthy soil has been destroyed by it. And I'm sure that it's not lost on them because they have been tending land, you know, for generations in many cases. Mm-hmm. So, um, but what I, what I witnessed um, while touring various GMO farms is just the complete destruction of the soil, like, it, the soil that's in these fields, isn't really even soil anymore. It's like converted into a hard clay that has no life in it anymore. And like the way I describe what the soil is like is like in elementary school, when you get to build a sculpture and you're like all given a slab of of clay and it's like that, it's like moldable <laughs> chemical, <laughs> but probably much more dangerous to touch um, clay and Uh, One of the signs of health in the soil is how many worms are in it because they're really critical to soil health. And when digging through the soil with a shovel and if just, there were two carcasses of worms that were found in there. And usually it should be just packed with worms, be a really healthy soil, but they can't survive in this, in this chemical situation. And so not only do you have that going on in the soil where, you know, the, the, Worms can't survive, but also we have the same situation that, you know, made it such an excellent pipe cleaner is that it chelates all these key minerals that our body is entirely dependent upon to function. Um, So if the soil doesn't have these minerals, then they're not bioavailable for the crops. So then the crops don't have them. And then when we eat them, we're not getting what we were originally designed to get from the soil. So when I look around and I see these just extraordinary magnesium deficiencies, which I certainly had, and zinc deficiencies, and people like having so many psychological problems with like depression and anxiety and like anger at each other right now. And because I'm root cause based like you, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, how much do they need magnesium and zinc so desperately, Uh but the soil doesn't have it anymore because of the specific mechanism of action um, of glyphosate on the soil. So it's just, I mean, it's really fascinating when you think about it.
0: Yeah. I mean, magnesium is the fourth most popular uh, uh, micronutrient in the body. And as you say, it's so necessary for things like sleep and nervous system regulation and cardiovascular health. So you start to like you know, scratch your head and say like, well, why do we have uh, chronic insomnia? Well, there's a lot of, you know, places to point to, you know, chronic stress. Um, you know, certainly we've disrupted our circadian rhythms with, with access to blue light all the time. But, you know, we have to look at things like, why are we just not getting these core nutrients that we used to get from food? We're just not getting them. And I think like what, what you said is, is right on. From what I've read about it, it's a, you know, it's a chelator. So it creates these bonds that essentially prohibits this the plants from actually absorbing the nutrients from the soil. Um, the other thing that you say about earthworms too, I mean, I, in preparation for, for speaking with you, I was looking at Nature published a study on earthworms, a highly stringent publication um, showing that the application of glyphosate will kill just in one season, in one application, 50% of the earthworms in the soil. So then you compound that over a couple of years and what do you get? You get, you know, uh, a soil that's completely devoid of earthworms. So what does that mean? Well, earthworms obviously contribute to the nutrients in the soil, but they also aerate the soil, um, which is so important for water retention. Um, so, of course, you know, we have these, we see these epic droughts out there now. Um and then when it does rain, it just runs right off because there's no retention in the soil. So yeah, the five um,
1: foot floods, you know, that are pouring through the heartland because none of the soil can absorb it. It's just really stunning.
0: Yeah. And it's just um it's just staggering and honestly really sad because so much of that then glyphosate ridden soil, um, that runoff is going into these catchment systems and estuaries and then ends up in the you know, Mississippi River and comes downstream and you start to do any kind of analysis of cancer and where cancer is concentrated right now. I mean, we we hear about Cancer Alley. Well, it's right, you know, down the banks of the Mississippi and, you know, most efflorescent in in, around uh, Louisiana. And, you know, again, you know, some of these things are just hypotheses, but you begin to kind of put a lot of these puzzle pieces together and you're like, God, you know, we got to do something.
1: Oh, yeah. So desperately. And, you know, also in the soil, of course, is the very um, critical biome, the soil biome. Um, And as you were mentioning, it is an antibiotic. It's patented um, by Monsanto as that. Um, And so you think about applying that, and that is such a critical part, once again, of our livelihood. And, you know, the basis, the foundations of nature is how all that works together. So then you're spraying antibiotic on that soil, not to mention we're eating it. And, you know, that sort of gets to to the next idea about how it impacts our microbiome, of of course, quite directly as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, I want to move into that. I mean, I I wanted to just hover uh, maybe a bridge into plant and soil health, into human health might be to just uh, probe This particular cellular pathway that exists within plants and bacteria, called the shikimate pathway. Can you tell us a little bit about how glyphosate disrupts that particular pathway and why that is so detrimental both to plant health and then um, and then to human health?
1: Yeah. So, very to keep it relatively simple, um, and it's interesting because I first learned about this just to go back. I my my first. Foray into the glyphosate world was I was covering um, the Monsanto cancer trials in by sitting in the courtroom, and so that's how I learned like glyphosate 101. And and um, their lead attorney Brent Wisner described it so beautifully when he said it's like you know taking the bullet out of a shotgun or something like that because like everything that the plant needs to perform like all these key amino acids that they need like it it, it's impacted by glycine just stopped. So it can't continue to proliferate. And the shikimate pathway is also um, fascinatingly present in our microbiome. And so um, it will shut off these really key pathways that we need to create, you know, different things. And actually a lot of the, what is produced by these bacteria is, a lot of the things that regulate sort of our temperament so once again it's like okay what is happening here it's like the devastation of our of our microbiome and very fascinatingly so forever monsanto was saying oh you know this does not impact the human body and they said safe for humans like there is there's a little label on on the bottle and then there was a lawsuit just a couple of years ago and people were fine they're like no that's not true because in arguing that the microbiome is part of the human body and they want So monsanto had to take that off of their claims that it doesn't impact the human body. So, you know, yay for the microbiome (laughs) on behalf of them.
0: I'm so glad that you bring up the microbiome because I talk about it so much on this show and have interviewed a lot of functional medicine doctors and gastroenterologists. And, you know, as I started to delve a little bit deeper into um, like the shikimate pathway, for example. So that particular pathway, among other things, produces these essential amino acids. So essential amino acids are essentially amino acids that our bodies don't make endogenously. We have to get them exogenously in diet. Um, so some of these uh, essential amino acids, there's nine of them. Um, one of them is tryptophan, and another one is phenylalanine, and it's amazing, actually, that you bring it up with our microbiome because our bacteria can actually also produce those amino acids, which is just kind of fascinating and brilliant. Yes. <laughs> and, um, and if you look at tryptophan, for example, specifically, tryptophan is the antecedent for serotonin, which is made by Streptococcus and I think Enterococcus, these two kind of different bacteria that exist in the gut and i think 90 percent of our serotonin is 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 produced in the gut so if you block these pathways that then produce the essential amino acids like tryptophan and tryptophan is the antecedent for things like serotonin well we know serotonin is highly um, associated with with mood regulation and it's this kind of feel-good neurotransmitter and then all of a sudden, we have a whole class of drugs called SSRI, yes! selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors that try to keep serotonin in the okay. system. Yeah. And you're like, but wait a minute. <laughs> we just oh actually crippled the production of it in our bodies through blocking this particular pathway. So it's. Like, oh my gosh, it's
1: so mind blowing. And you know, yeah. I was looking for a long time for data. Um, on the sales and rise of the purchase of SSRIs because Mm. I, I have a strong suspicion that it too would like correlate very closely with that. And interestingly, like it's actually really hard data to find. And I wonder why.
0: Yeah. Well, this is what we have to citizen scientists unite, right? This is what (laughs) we need to, um, to figure out because, you know, we've started to put together this, you know, correlation oriented data around, okay, the, the, um, over application of herbicides like like glyphosate with chronic disease with autism and then you know you just start to continue to pull that thread okay now you know we're looking at epidemic levels of depression mental yeah. illness um and and why you know okay yeah you can point your fingers to a whole different variety of things definitely social media and stress you know um, but. Are there other elements um, at play here? And when you start to do some of the biochemical analysis anyways, and you realize that there are particular cellular pathways that are blocked, as you've described, and those cellular pathways are absolutely integral to certain compounds and neurotransmitters and chemical processes in your body you know, it's not just a bunch of hot air. This is, uh, these are, you know, science-based analyses.
1: And, you know, I really actually take issue with um, a lot of people that say, well, it's the times right now, it's such like anxious times and that's what's causing it. It, Like, then you think through like history and world wars and like all this stuff, and it wasn't Mm. an epidemic, like it wasn't like it is. So when you're at a cocktail party and you want to bring that up, you can get people to call it quickly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
0: true, true. Well, I, and, you know, as I was kind of poking at this more, phenylalanine, which is another essential uh, amino acid that's blocked by the, you know, that that is not getting produced when you're blocking or disrupting the shikimate pathway, that is the antecedent for dopamine. So, yes. um, you know, so you're like, and, and which is obviously central to the brain's reward system and a mood regulator. So, when you're blocking these pathways and you start to realize, well, I've blocked, you know, production of dopamine, of serotonin, serotonin is also happens to be the precursor of melatonin, yeah. which helps to, um, which helps our sleeping patterns. And we know how important sleep is, um, for, for a panoply of reasons, then you're like, it all God. Makes sense. yeah. So talk a little bit about some of the other uh, knock-on impacts in the gut as it pertains to glyphosate and um, and dysbiosis and what has become known as, as leaky gut because I think this is a huge part of the equation
1: this is such a huge huge part that very few people I mean recently you know with with thanks to you know Zach and and dr. Bush and dr. Hyman talking about it, um, is bringing it more to the forefront. But when I first learned about uh, gut dysbiosis and leaky gut, I was going regularly to the Institute of Functional Medicine conferences every year and trying to learn. Mm. And I was so annoyed because they would talk agnosium about what the mechanisms are for you know leaky gut, the explosion in autoimmunity, dysbiosis, and um, you know the whole gamut. And they would never mention the clearest route and i still to this day don't understand why unless they're really worried about making bear mad or monsanto mad because it's very obvious and i you know i even dr fasano who is someone a scientist who discovered sort of how leaky gut happens and he like proved it and he's so impressive and so cool and i really enjoyed hearing him speak and you know i even asked him and i was like well do you think that there's an issue here and he said well yes but And, you know, he can only say so much because, you know, that his funding is going to be limited because industry is going to be having a really tight control on that. And, you know, you go to the Celia, I went to a Celia conference and, and they're not willing to mention it either. And I bring it up each time. And what's so crazy about it is that it's not only the glyphosate in this case too, it's also the surfactant and it's, Mm -hmm. it's called POEA. Um, And it is a surfactant that actually is not allowed to be used in Europe. So their their formulation of Roundup is considerably less toxic than ours, which is so upsetting because you know that they're able to manufacture two different types, but for whatever reason, the U.S. is like, fine, just send your poisons our way. We don't mind eating them. We're fine. Um, so, So that is extremely toxic and carcinogenic in and of itself. But of course, the glyphosate as well, um, you know, coming in and creating this, this havoc. So it it tends to kill our beneficial bacteria and potentiate the, the less desirable bacteria. So some of the more pathogenic bacteria are able to resist its effects. So things like E. coli um, are able to proliferate. And so then you have this real disaster in the microbiome of a lack of beneficial bacteria. And the combination of the glyphosate um as well as just you know this mucosal disruption and gluten actually in in many cases will Mm -hmm. really encourage this um to keep it like kind of high level, it really encourages this um leaky gut basically that
0: you know going into
1: the bloodstream that that shouldn't be there.
0: You can get geeky. It's cool <laughs> to get geeky if you want to get geeky because, because uh, <laughs> <Okay. laughs> <laughs> I know you, you can. need the
1: tight junctions and, and so <laughs> the <it laughs> potentiates like the zonulin and the zonulin mm-hmm. goes and opens up the tight junctions. And so it's that combination that then lets all these toxins just out of you know your intestine and into the bloodstream wreaking havoc and creating this autoimmune like, you know, um, Situation. And, you know, it doesn't just end in the gut because now new research has come out that's proven that it also um, will, it, it breaks through the blood brain barrier. It goes in and can cause um, neurodegeneration. And it's a lot of scientists are looking to see what that exact impact is. Um, more, ter- I mean, that's pretty scary, but actually more terrifying to me is this connection with um, endocrine disruption. And mm-hmm. it's really, You know, it's crippling our ability to reproduce because specifically it cross crosses the um, blood testes barrier and it leads to early sperm death. And we know it also goes into the developing fetus of the baby girls and it impacts the eggs. And, you know, it, I actually decided I was, I wanted to see just how impacted my daughter was. And so I sent her baby tooth in to the lab to see if there was blyxate in it, it was there. So you think, okay, it's in, it's in her baby tooth that was formed in utero. So where else did this go? Certainly throughout her body.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so Yeah, wow, Th- that's shocking. I mean, I know, for example, there's particular bacteria in our guts when we're just infants, like lactobacillus and bifidobacterium that are the good bugs in our gut that um, can be, um adversely impacted by concentrations of glyphosate, but we need those bacteria, for example, to digest breast milk. So when we're compromised uh early in life, and as you say, obviously there's something that's like this particular chemical is being passed down in utero. So we are compromising um, you know, our children's well-being um, you know, through the ingestion uh, of this particular chemical. And, and that's, you know, really, um, you know, it it should make us all just take, uh, take heed because it's not just our own health too. It's the the health of our our progeny. And,
1: you know, there are studies that are showing that it's the real impacts aren't even showing up in the first generation. So say like, you know, I'm, Am I the, the first? Yeah, I, I would be, you know, the first generation. I have my babies. It's not showing up there so much as it is in the grandkids and the great-grandkids in the rodent studies. So, you know, we're kind of waiting to see what the Roundup babies, you know, look like in the coming generations.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we haven't even crossed uh, into any kind of analysis, kind of epigenetic analysis there of like, are our, our gene our genes becoming methylated through exposure to this particular chemical, such that our gene expression not only ex, uh, changes um, in our own lives, but are we passing down those methyl- methylation markers to our progeny? And what yes. is that going to look like? So that's a little, <laughs> it's beyond it's, my pay grade, but it's a little scary to, it's to really think about.
1: Scary. And, you know, the um, Dr. Shauna Swan, uh, who I've had the opportunity to talk with a lot of times and she's so fascinating she wrote the book countdown um, and it talks about the rise of infertility and the environmental toxins that are causing it and it's not just glyphosate of course there are plenty of other toxins for us to worry about but a specific study that she did that i find fascinating um, is one that she a group of it wasn't a a group of researchers um they tested the urinary levels of glyphosate in pregnant women and they tested them in the second trimester, and then they measured the distance between the anus and the vagina in the female babies to see yeah. if there's any correlation. And and they found that that distance got longer in correlation with how much glyphosate the mother had in her urine. And so that's androgenization. And you know you have to be very delicate about talking about this area because you know I you, you can witness a bit of that in society. Um, and mm-hmm you know, how much of that is social, how much of that is, is not how much of it is chemical. It's really a hard Mm -hmm. thing to figure out, but from, from the, the research is showing that physically these changes are happening and certainly testosterone levels, you know, are coming down and these physical changes are happening and, you know, um, glyphosate has also been connected with a higher likelihood of uh, miscarriage so you know you know it's definitely getting in there and, and messing up our endocrine systems and reproductive systems this is terrifying i mean yeah. it's like it, it's like i feel like you know the grim reaper when i talk about these things and i don't want to be but it's like oh my gosh pay attention this is bad it has to stop
0: Well, there are some bright spots on the horizon, and we'll, we'll get we'll get to some brighter spots, some some areas of hope, because I do think that there is some awakening around this topic. Um, uh, but I think one point that really I, I I can't underscore enough, and you you explained it beautifully, is the connection between glyphosate and intestinal permeability, and I, I just can't. Um, overemphasize uh, or, or emphasize enough that particular phenomenon, because what we're seeing right now are epidemic levels of chronic inflammation in our systems that are really the substrate for so many different chronic diseases. And what that is, is in um, it's the immune system being over agitated um, and if you again, if you kind of go upstream from that, well, why is that happening? Well, through a whole different combination or sort of cocktail of inputs from, you know, sugar and processed foods and refined grains and refined sugars and NSAIDs and PPIs and uh, over prescription of antibiotics and environmental toxins, but certainly glyphosate, it's playing a central role in this. What you said is the tight junctions the barrier in that epithelium that separates our gut from our immune system and our bloodstream is breaking down and essentially endotoxins or lipopolysaccharides or kind of the broken down walls of bacteria are kind of passing through that barrier and that is activating or triggering this immune response and that would be okay if it just happened every once in a while, but we're in a chronic state of that. And so our, our immune system is in sort of agita. And, uh, and obviously this inflammation travels then throughout the whole body and can be kind of, um, I guess what I would call it sort of the, the substrate for so many of these different chronic diseases. So, you know, and I've struggled personally with rebuilding my gut. Um, And so that one is a is one that hits home for me. And I I think it's, you
1: You know, is it's a lot of guess and check for me, because there are just so many things that are out there that I've tried in terms of healing my gut. And, you know, it would be so nice if the answer maybe could just be well, we'll just eat really well, but it doesn't seem like it seems like a lot of times more than that is necessary.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of protocols that we can adopt and maybe we can touch on a few to, to uh, protect the liver and feed the gut. That's Robert Lustig's moniker, if you will. Nice. Um, but I want to like um, bring up one more hypothesis that I first read about through the work of Stephanie Seneff, who we referred to, um, which has to do with glycine, which is another um, amino acid which is sort of the precursor for glutathione. So glutathione is obviously a fairly celebrated antioxidant um, right now, uh, and, and at the mitochondrial level can protect us from um, a lot of oxidative stress. But uh, one of the theories or hypotheses um, that Stephanie's put out there is that the chemical formula for glyphosate is so similar, to the chemical makeup of glycine, that it that glyphosate is essentially mucking up our body's ability to generate glutathione um, mm-hmm. and leading to a lot of oxidative stress. I, I don't know if you've heard her talk about that at all or if you have any thoughts on that. I
1: heard that. just a little bit, and I didn't look into it in great detail, but I did, you know, I I did wonder about that correlation between it being very buzzy right now, a lack of it and what's changed, you know, that was sort right. of my, my conclusion yeah. on, on that front. And I mean, everything that she seems out like, well, that seems like that could be sensible.
0: Yeah. So she l- talks
1: l- about l- she's l- very focused on.
0: Yeah. So I I'd love to hear a little bit about your experience with the Dwayne Lee Johnson case, because I think that was a huge entry point for you and uh, um, you know it's so interesting just from a story perspective Um, and I think it also represents at least for me one of the brighter lights uh, in the glyphosate saga so Mm -hmm. can you uh, do you mind sharing a little bit about what the Dwayne Lee Johnson case was Mm -hmm. and how you became involved (laughs)
1: yeah (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it's so crazy I became involved in that because after I came back from that original conference at Columbia and I was so upset about Roundup, I was like, oh, my gosh. And so I'm looking it up and I'm like, oh, my gosh, in San Francisco, which is where I live, I'm like there is a trial that's happening just in a few weeks. It's the first time Monsanto has been brought on trial in front of a jury. So, like, very exciting. And so I went up to protest Monsanto because I assumed in – <laughs> in san francisco there'd be protests but no no walked right in sat right down with the lawyers um and where are all the
0: hippies go- <laughs> where all the hippies go no.
1: where did they go i guess they can't afford to live in san francisco because none were there. it was very very sad and disappointing so it would have been my very first protest so um and you know there were some some journalists that were there the first day and then it petered out um in terms of who was covering it and I was like my gosh it's so critical i remember talking to the cbs like Journalist, I'm like, no, you have to be covering this. You don't realize it's like vital to the future of humanity. And I mean, I still feel that way. I I do. And like, it finally was bringing this attention of glyphosate in, in this context, cancer, but you know, whatever context it it, it needs to be. Um, and so Dwayne Johnson, I'm sorry, well, to finish that story, I ended up staying and blogging every day and telling some stories about it. And um, so Dwayne Johnson, I... He was a pesticide applicator at public school district in California, and he was very exposed to Roundup topically. Like he had some spills um, from his backpack on his skin. And, um, but, you know, he wore his, the protective clothing that actually they don't require you to wear, but he did. And it went through and saturated him. Mm -hmm. And he, um, very shortly thereafter actually came down with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma or developed it. And, um, so, The trial was exploring the carcinogenicity of glyphosate. So it was a few, it was multifold. So, you know, could this cause cancer? Did the company know that it could cause cancer? And the answers are both yes and yes. Um, And epidemiologists and toxicologists all presented their evidence. And it really floored me, not so much that this causes cancer. I'm like, well, clearly when they're showing this research, I'm like, yes, this causes cancer. And the only response that Monsanto had was, well, the EPA says it doesn't. So it doesn't, you know, and we're not liable. (laughs) Like that was sort of the constant response. Um, And so, you know, that was shocking in that I was someone that fully trusted our regulatory system at that point. And I mean, I don't know why, that makes me feel stupid because now I know so much more about our regulators and, and how completely bought they are by corporations but at the time that was really stunning to me that they would allow uh, something that they know that causes cancer their own epa scientists have said that it causes cancer and they're still to this day allowing it to be sprayed and letting people like lee johnson and of course hundred uh, over a hundred thousand other plaintiffs um you know, suffer with cancer as a result of it so what i yeah. really oh go ahead
0: no, I, I was going to say, though, I, I suppose the good news was, though, that the the jury did render a relatively historic verdict. Isn't that right?
1: Yeah. So that that was phenomenal. The first verdict The, the then there was a second um, trial that went it was a federal trial and it also won and then a third one. And that was the two billion dollar like settlement or, or award rather. It, that isn't what it ended up being. That was too much. It was brought down. But. Um, the what I loved about the two billion dollar one is that someone internal at Monsanto, uh, when in this in this discovery documents, they were emailing about how finding glyphosate to be a carcinogen would be a billion dollar problem, <laughs> and so there were two plaintiffs, and so they're like, "What would be appropriate?" We know, <laughs>
0: right?
1: So, so that, but right. what also was fantastic about those trials is that this attention suddenly was paid to glyphosate and, you know, it was finally making headlines. And I, I think though, at that point, and still today, most people still think of it as just being sold on, you know, at Home Depot and unfortunately at Target, which I've argued with them about. But, you know, you don't, I don't think most people realize that this is spread on all of our food and we're eating it every day. They just think of it as something you can buy and use in your backyard.
0: Right, and and of course, a lot of the GMO crops are used for feed on concentrated animal feeding operations or CAFOs. So it's not just on our fruits and vegetables. It's also in all industrial meat products as well, because of course cattle and pigs and chickens are eating GMO food, which is sprayed at the crop level by glyphosate. When I, so, And
1: yeah. I even asked um, a GMO farmer, because So one of the things that you'll hear that the food industry will say in GMO industry and like the USDA and FDA is like we we have to feed the world. And the only way we can feed the world is if we use uh, these chemicals and GMOs. So that's how they defend them. Otherwise, we'll all starve. And (laughs) have you heard that? (laughs) oh yeah oh sure yeah yeah. that's
0: the that's the big excuse is like how are we going to feed 10 billion people well totally he's telling
1: me this because that's what he's been sold and i was like so then i'm looking i'm like so can you break down the proportions of where your crops are going to go and you know this huge chunk is going to feed the meat industry i'm like so it's not feed the world because you're eating just like i think it's something like 10 percent of the corn goes to human consumption and that's just in refined you know high fructose corn syrup and that kind of thing but what? this huge massive amount is just going to feed animals. So it's feeding the world meat. And he's like, Yeah, that's right. I'm like, okay, well <laughs> <laughs> it's so sad. And then you go and you visit. I don't know if you've been able to go see these capos, but I mean, it's horrific. It's so sad. These animals are so, so sick.
0: They're sick. Well, of course, they all have intestinal permeability. All that all the cattle have leaky gut as well. Yeah. So they're also in a hyper cortisol infused, hyper inflamed state. So when we're eating industrial farmed meat, we're just really, we're eating sick meat. Super um, sick meat. And, yeah. So and like, it's, you know, uh...
1: I just remember looking at this line of cattle and like just mucus pouring out of their nose and they're so sick. You know, they probably also have antibiotics and stuff. They're trying to control that. But yeah, super leaky.
0: Yeah, well, of course, the antibiotics only serves to further undermine the plethora of healthy bacteria in their gut. <laughs> so, really, I mean, this is a, a you know macabre, but the application of antibiotics, there's it, it, an argument to be made there. Is really, they're not really trying to protect uh, the cows; they're actually just trying to fatten them up quicker, because we know when we break down the systems of the gut, basically. You become insulin resistant. So when you become insulin resistant, you know your cells don't use glucose, which is what's what they're eating because they're eating grains. Uh, you're not using that for energy production. You're storing it as fat. So they fatten them up as quickly as possible. Uh, you know, and this is what you know short-term profits are about. And <laughs> it's, it, so it's hard because it's hard to point your finger at you know individuals per se because you know there's a lot of folks that are just working hard to you know put food on the table for their families it's just that these systems and structures that we've created uh, have so many misaligned incentives and they externalize so many of the true costs i mean we're talking about a four trillion dollar annual sick care Expense to deal with chronic disease, and that's just where we are now. But I mean, I've seen estimates, you know, going five, ten years in the future, where we're talking like three, four x that amount. You know, this bankrupt the totally. country, basically. Yeah, um, absolutely.
1: And you know, um, I would love to talk a little bit about um, this uh, White House conference on nutrition.
0: Yeah, please do. It, it's,
1: it sort of is in this in this realm of, I've just been kind of like shaking my head a little bit anyway. So, so 50 years ago, there was the first white house conference in nutrition and it was very successful. And, um, there, the food stamp program came out of it, school lunches came out of it. And what was wonderful is that the way it was executed is that just the president could give an executive order and these things just were, and, and these, bills that were proposed were already pre-negotiated kind of between different parties and so there wasn't much like uh you know infighting or anything and and just the food the food system really benefited from it so a group of people that are also very concerned about you know our state of nutrition and and chronic disease thought that this might be the appropriate time to make some changes that otherwise are really held up in the bureaucracy of dc and in special interests and so they said, what about we do a 50-year anniversary nutrition conference? And um, and so it's been kind of vague. So a lot of people have just kind of heard about it, but like, when's it happening? Is this a big to-do? And leading up to the conference, there have been several listening sessions where um, you kind of came together with a group of people to say, okay, what's on your mind on nutrition? What's your concern? Um, what do you think needs to change? You could submit written proposals then that this conference committee we're, we're going to assess. And um, something that, you know, I that really stood out to me in these conversations is how little people know about the toxicants that are on our food and how much that is contributing to the chronic disease epidemic. And so the discussion primarily is is right now and it'll be interesting to see when the conference ultimately happens in a few weeks. Um, What comes out of it because the concern seems to be people don't have enough food and hunger is a big issue and hunger certainly is an issue particularly for certain pockets of the population but serving them crap food (laughs) with tons of chemicals is not the solution and i just kind of look around i wonder where are the nutritionists on this like i think a lot of mainstream non-functional nutritionists are still thinking okay what's your calorie count like what they're not thinking what in addition to like a typical broccoli what else is on that broccoli why aren't why isn't our government asking that and what contribution does that have to the chronic disease epidemic i mean it's just so such a key part of it and so that's been frustrating and i'm going to be interested to see you know if any. i know a lot of people have been calling for the halt of the desiccation of um, with roundup of grains to, as a first step to lower the chemical component of our food. But, you know, it's really a missing part of the conversation far and wide. So when the White House Conference on Nutrition isn't addressing the chemical components that are being added to our food system and all these toxicants that we know cause endocrine disruption, they cause leaky gut, they cause like this dysbiosis, they potentially are causing infertility. And miscarriages, and they're not willing to address that component of our food system. Then I feel like it's missing more than half of the story of nutrition in the United States right now. So it's just disappointing to see.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I share your frustration there. We talked a little bit about um, this one particular issue in California with insulin before we we before we press record. Where, you know, there's a lot of good intentions, um, for example, around that particular bill where Newsom signed a bill to, for California to, to produce its own insulin to be able to keep, you know, insulin prices low for people who are suffering from diabetes. And of course, you know, that's a well-intentioned bill, but it doesn't address the upstream question of, well, why do we have such rampant diabetes in the first place. So, you know, for a conference on nutrition or a conference on food, um, you know, obviously we're all excited about that. It's so, um, it's so enheartening to see, you know, like senators like Cory Booker get behind, you know, some of these issues that I think a lot of us are really fighting for, but then to have a well-intentioned conference miss such a critical component of the problem, um, it's a bit frustrating. I mean, especially for you, because I know that. you Oh my gosh, it's so, so frustrating it.
1: and yeah. like, you know, and, and I'm with you, like, I don't think the intentions are bad in this case. I just think it's not on the radar. And so yeah. my constant question is, okay, so how do we get this on the radar? There's so many competing issues, like certainly in DC, um, that are really equally pressing, but I could, I would be happy to go and debate why this is one of the most pressing things facing the future of our country.
0: I, I completely agree with you. I mean, I think that the inflammation that we see in our in our public discourse is a direct reflection of the inflammation that we're having inside of our body. Oh my gosh, I mean,
1: It's exactly
0: it. And you know, um, you know, I don't want to get mired into a political conversation, and um, and we could have that at some other point. But when you see the invective. That exists in the political world, and uh, and then you kind of again try to move upstream, and you think about um, you know half of the country that is suffering from a chronic disease, or in certain communities, you know we're talking about eighty percent of a population um, suffering from obesity, cardiometabolic disease or dysfunction diabetes um, yeah. and then those same folks can't access quality health care or can't afford to get insulin. You know, you wonder why people are so angry, are so frustrated. And, uh, and this spills over obviously and into our public discourse. I mean, we have to really examine why we are not healthy as a society. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I Literally think if we did, me. a lot of our problems would would, would go away and we could, uh, you know, go back to sort of, you know, disagreeing without being so disagreeable all the time.
1: Completely. And I just, I've been waiting for a leader to step up and just make these points, at least in DC leader. We have leaders within the movement, but it's certainly not mainstream. Yet I do think that the average citizen learning about this, you know, people outside of our wellness world, they'd be shocked and really disappointed. And I come back to the kids a lot because my own kids had issues before they were gluten free and organic. And, you know, I am often, often school teachers will reach out to me and they'll be DMing me on Instagram about how half of their kids are clearly, you know, really struggling with inflammation and ADHD and, you know, the stomach issues. Mm -hmm. Crohn's disease is an epidemic in small kids, of course, because it's in the gut. Um, And, you know, how horrible for those teachers. No wonder why so many like are opting not to be teachers anymore. It's just it's just so infectious in so many different systems.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, the good news or a little bit of the good news, you know, I was looking uh, online at all of the countries that have banned the use of glyphosate glyphosate over the last few years. And it is a growing list. I mean, what I found at least most recently was 32 countries, including Mexico, Germany, France, Denmark, Brazil. Some are in the course of phasing it out. Some of it have banned use completely. Um, and then, you know, I know I live in LA. So in July, 2019, the LA County Board of Supervisors formally banned Roundup in LA County. And... Um, and I believe yeah. that that is also true.
1: I just wonder how much they hold to it.
0: Yeah, that's true. I don't know. I don't know what the compliance is. Um, but, you know, there are other cities, Austin, um, uh, Portland, Miami. So hopefully some uh, of the work that, you know, you're doing is is paying off. And, uh, and I agree with you, it, you know, I always come back to my children as well. I have three daughters and, um, and I try to imagine, you know, what kind of world that they're going to inherit. And, uh, and I, it it just goes to sort of, I I guess, bolster, you know, my commitment to trying to spread information about, um, about health issues. And I think, you know, you're on the, you're at the tip of the spear you know, Kelly, with your advocacy and your work, I know, you know, how many people um, listen to you. And, uh, and I know your work is having tremendous impact. And 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 I think people really trust you, because uh, you don't have <laughs> any misaligned incentives. You know, you're just an, uh, an engaged citizen. I mean, maybe you're only <laughs> misaligned incentives is wanting a better world for your children, which I would That's hardly awesome. call misaligned. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I'm just really grateful for, for your work. And I hope oh, that we you. can find ways to work together to, um, you know, to, to create more advocates, uh, around this important work.
1: Oh yeah. I would love that. That would be wonderful. Thanks cool. so much for giving me the opportunity.
0: Yeah, well, to be continued, and I, I really hope to to be able to commune with you in three dimensions. So maybe we'll take it offline. But uh, I could uh, I could imagine a thought leader symposium um, where we're connecting important folks and influential folks about around this issue. I think that that could be a a good project for us.
1: Oh, that would be phenomenal! More voices, the more coming together, which is clearly like your skill which is fantastic we we were talking offline about that like just the more we can work together because this is a group project um the better
0: cool all right kelly ryerson thank you so much thank you Thank you for listening to my conversation with Kelly Ryerson. Check out her articles like the truth about how the herbicide glyphosate created a public health emergency at glyphosategirl.com. And if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple podcasts and leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, you have a sense for how much effort we put into the show's creation, and we really do our best to keep ads to a minimum. So if you're looking for a way. To support our efforts, the best way is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than a 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. You can check it out for 14 days for free at onecommune.com trial. And of course, feel free to reach out to me directly at any time with criticism of the constructive variety at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week, including Jacob Lau, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Ruby Foster, Emma Fret, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you.